Hi, my name is Gabriel Huet, and welcome to Philab Podcast, where we will explore the complex world of Canadian philanthropy by interviewing and showcasing the lived experience of multiple actors in the sector. This month's special edition focuses on the relationship between philanthropy and animals. For this occasion, we've produced a second podcast on the theme, showcasing a different area of focus, protecting our oceans and marine wildlife. Philab was able to connect with someone who made it his life mission to protect the oceans and the animals who live in it. The founder of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, Captain Paul Watson. The ocean is the most important part of our planet in terms of mass and volume but it's often left behind when policymakers ought to act and protect it. As our guest is known to say, if the ocean dies, we all die. For today's episode, Catherine McDonald, Philab's Head of Communications, will conduct the interview. Catherine has been involved in the animal protection community for over a decade. A former SPCA employee and activist for animal rights, she has written multiple articles on the subject for Philab's special edition on the philanthropy for animals. With that said, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Well, I was uh, one of the founding directors of Greenpeace, uh, and that was um, in 1972 when we established Greenpeace. And then I left Greenpeace in 77 to uh, set up Sea Shepherd. And the reason being is that I felt that there was a need to actually take action and not just a protest. I'm not really a protester. And uh, so I set Sea Shepherd up to uh, intervene against illegal activities primarily. And uh, with a specific strategy, which I uh, call uh, aggressive nonviolence, <laughs> which means that uh, we're going to aggressively intervene, but we're not going to hurt anybody. And after 45 years, we haven't uh, killed or hurt anybody. So uh, we're quite proud of that proud of that record, but we have shut down literally hundreds and hundreds of illegal activities. Uh, we've driven the, the Japanese whalers out of the Southern Oceans uh, where they were killing whales illegally. And, uh, and now today we're, uh, we've got 10 ships out on the ocean and uh, we're in partnerships with numerous countries. Uh, it's, it's, it was actually quite a novel thing for an NGO to, to partner with uh, various governments. It started in Ecuador when we partnered with the Galapagos National Park to protect the marine reserve in 1999. But beginning in, um, in, in 2015, we really ramped that up because of uh, we had a 110 day pursuit of, a, of an ice fish poacher called the, the Thunder. It was the longest pursuit of a poacher in maritime history. And that actually got us involved with various countries and with Interpol. And uh, we then got invited uh, to work with various countries. So now we're in partnership with like Liberia, uh, Sierra Leone, uh, Cabo Verde, uh, San Tome, Namibia, Tanzania, Ghana, the Gambia, and uh, also in Latin America with uh, Peru, Panama, and Mexico. And what that means is that we go into their waters with our resources and they provide the authority for us to intervene. Beyond the 200-mile limit, though, where we operate in under the principles of the United Nations World Charter for Nature, which allows for intervention, uh, you know, to uphold international conservation law. And so that's what we've been doing now for 45 years. And uh, Sea Shepherd's no longer an organization. It's now a, a movement. It's a global movement. And we're in about 42 different countries, but uh, they're all separate entities. 
So my question is especially is going to be around different funding issues. So one of the first questions I had was, how did you finance the first purchase of the, the first Sea Shepherd ship? Well, actually, uh, two conservative organizations <laughs> actually helped me out. Uh, one was Cleveland Amory's Fund for Animals based in New York City. And uh, I went to Cleveland in order to, to get help to uh, oppose the killing of seals. And uh, he said, well, what do you need? I said, I, I need a ship. And uh, uh, he said, well, uh, so he gave me $120,000 to find a ship. So I found the ship in England and uh, great, but now I didn't have any money to operate it. Uh, so then I went to the RSPCA and uh, they gave me a 50,000 um, pound donation. So that was their first campaign. And after that, we just sort of, you know, um, raised money. Actually for the second ship, we lost our first ship uh, in the battle with a pirate whaler. But for the second ship, I, I sold the movie rights to the, um, to the incident with the pirate whaler to Warner Brothers and that financed our second ship. Does does Sea Shepherd mostly rely on volunteers uh, from its member base to operate the rest of its costs? Yes, we've always been a primarily a volunteer organization. We've had about, I'd say, 7,000 volunteers over the years. And right now, at any given moment, there'd be 250 volunteers on those ships and also on shore campaigns in various areas of the, of the world. Uh, so we're primarily a volunteer organization. In the beginning, actually, uh, volunteers were more than just volunteers. They actually had to, to pay to come on board because otherwise we couldn't afford the fuel. So you could volunteer with $1,000 and that helped to uh, purchase the fuel. But now we don't need to do that anymore. So volunteers uh, are now are only responsible for their uh, travel to get to the ship and to get back, but uh, they're provided with room and board and, and all that. That's really an interesting funding model for sure uh, to pay to vol for, for volunteering, but it definitely well, helps the cause, right? I called it the, the Tom Sawyer approach. <laughs> Very interesting. So since, uh, since 1977, have your tactics evolved since then, like from either a political standpoint or from an action standpoint? And have you run into any specific conflicts that have led to these changes in strategy? We actually haven't changed uh, other than the partnership program, which we started with Ecuador and now with many other countries. That, that's a definite change in strategy. But uh, direct intervention using uh, aggressive nonviolence has been our main uh, approach, and that hasn't that hasn't really changed. Um, where we were considered once quite radical, it's not that we've changed that we sort of become in a bit mainstream, but it's only because I think of the desperation on the part of governments and, and, and companies around the world that see what's happening to the planet. And uh, therefore they're, they, they wanna do something and get involved. So we're getting a lot more uh, support from various companies and of course, various governments. Uh, strangely enough, uh, um, I was uh, invited by we were invited by John Kerry to join the American Security Council, and uh, we're actually having meetings with admirals and, and things like that. And they teach our what we they teach what we do at the United States Naval War College, uh, because what they're looking for is ways to to deal with illegal fishing, which the military, like the Pentagon, and that consider a threat to national security. And uh, the problem is, is that governments around the world really have no experience on, on dealing with those issues. I mean, they, they really put all their uh, attention on drug intervention, mm -hmm. but really been no effort to do uh, intervene against illegal fishing operations. And that's becoming a major problem. And, uh, and so we, we're the only people that have been doing it. So that's why they've been coming to us to see, you know, how we can work uh, with them to do that.
that's really interesting that now not only before I feel it was more that you were getting lawsuits for for doing your actions and now governments are inviting you for your advice. That's a pretty strong evolution. Well, the interesting thing is we've never been convicted of any felonies. Uh, and also in the lawsuits, we've won every, every one of them. We've won in the courts. Uh, I've always felt that the courtroom is an extension of our uh, confrontations uh, in, in the field. And uh, so you have to have a good understanding of the workings of the law. You know, about 10 years ago, I was invited to give a, a lecture to the FBI in Quantico. And uh, one of the special agents there said, uh, you know, Sea Shepherd's walking a pretty fine line when it's come to the law. And I said, yeah, well, does it really matter how fine that line is as long as you don't cross the line? And we don't cross that line. There might be a perception that we do, but but we don't. Uh, and of course, and there's a lot of stories, you know, a lot of people out there think that we're a bunch of terrorists and we go around uh, killing people and everything. And I don't really care if they believe that because that really makes our job easier. When we show up uh, and the poachers are there, they're scared to death of us. They think that you know, our jolly Roger flag and everything, they think that we're going to torpedo them and send them all to the bottom. Of course, we're not going to do that, but perception goes a long ways towards, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, getting things done that way. Do you feel like social media, since it's been more prominent, obviously, in the last 10, 20 years, do you feel like that has changed the impact of that you can have on your different campaigns? Well, I think so. But, uh, you know, we've always been uh, good at understanding the nature of media. Uh, you know, we live in a media culture, so you have to adapt to that. I mean, one of the reasons Greenpeace became so successful was really the first environmental organization to understand that uh, the power of the media. And it's no accident that Greenpeace was established by journalists and broadcasters and communications majors. That's, that's the people who set up Greenpeace. And I was a communication major at the, at the time at Simon Fraser University. But um, I feel that uh, you have to evolve with that changing medium. One of the things that I did to uh, get Sea Shepherd really going, though, was back in 2006, uh, I went to all the different networks in the U.S. and I said, look, the biggest show on TV right now, or on Discovery right now, is a bunch of guys who go into a cold, remote area to catch crabs. And I can give you men and women going to a far colder, more remote, more hostile environment to save whales. It has to be more compelling than catching crabs every week. And Animal Planet went for it. I wish Discovery had it, but Animal Planet went for it. And uh, it was their top show for seven years. And the reason it isn't there now is because we won and the Japanese are no longer in the Southern Ocean killing whales. That's a pretty nice success. This, to end the, the series of uh, the show, you can say, well, it doesn't exist anymore. So. Yeah, and also though, what that did was it shot up our um, support base uh, like a thousand percent because of that television um, in, uh, you know, coverage uh, from that show. I mean, we took that, what was going on in Antarctica and put it around the world in people's rooms, our living rooms, and, uh, and that got us an awful lot of support. Well, what we've been doing since then is doing a lot of uh, documentaries. Uh, a documentary on myself called Watson. Uh, we did uh, Sea of Shadows uh, about the Paquita campaign in, uh, in the Gulf of California. Uh, also, uh, the big one was Seaspiracy. And Seaspiracy was successful also because it's a good documentary, but also the medium sometimes is more important than the message it conveys. So the fact that you can get it onto a thing like Netflix will guarantee you reaching many more people. And it's better, and that way you can reach people, the unconverted. You know, it's, what's the point of making a documentary where everybody who agrees with you is going to see it? The point is to make those documentaries and get it out to people who have never heard of you. And that's why uh, Seaspiracy was so effective. 
Speaking of funding, so when you talk about these documentaries, such as the series on um, Animal Planet or Seaspiracy, would these be also helping fund the more direct actions as well as being education and awareness campaigns? Well, both, yes. Uh, they're educational, but also they uh, we get a, a lot of people then support us or join up with us and everything because of those. Uh, you know, people have never even heard of Sea Shepherd, Sea Seaspiracy, and say, well, how can I get involved? And uh, yeah, so it certainly has... Uh, has helped that that way. We've um, we've always maintained, uh, you know, tried to keep keep our administrative overhead very very low. Uh, you know, we don't have offices really, and uh, you know, we don't have a lot of paid, highly paid administrators uh, and things like this. And but the other thing we don't do is we don't do fundraising. That is, we don't do direct mail. We don't we don't spend money to raise money. That was something I decided to do when I set up Sea Shepherd. Is that I want people to know that when they donate their uh, uh, make a donation, that that donation goes to the ships and the campaigns, and we can tell them exactly what it's being spent on. You know, a lot of these organizations, like for instance, I can speak for Greenpeace because I was a founding director. Greenpeace brings in about three hundred and fifty million dollars a year, three actually three hundred fifty million euros a year, and um, they spend about seventy to eighty million on fundraising. You know, that keeps generating that, so they keep having to do that. Now we don't bring in nearly that much. I think we about twenty million totally, uh, and that, but we don't spend any money on fundraising to do it. But what we're able to achieve with that 20 million is what they can't do with their 350 million. We have 10 ships, they have three. Uh, they hardly do anything with those ships. We do things all the time with them. Uh, our strength lies in our volunteer base, not in the monies that we, that we have. And so we're, money has not been the motivating you know, factor for pushing, uh, getting Sea Shepherd campaigns to be successful. Uh, like I, I've never, I, I don't ask people for money. We don't, uh, you know, we don't you know, beg for people's support. And it, it, uh, when I originally set it up, I said, look, we're doing something I think that is gonna benefit the world that needs to be done. And if people see what we're doing, then they're gonna volunteer and support us. And that in fact is what has, uh, has happened. Recently, we just got um, uh, a person in, uh, uh, Dax De Silva in Montreal just gave us, uh, you know, four point five million dollars on that. And uh, what that, but here's his motivation. A lot of other motivations is that you can sponsor a ship, <laughs> and uh, so our vessel, the Bob Barker. That's because Bob Barker gave us five million dollars. He actually didn't want us to name the ship after him, but I said, look, you know, if we name the ship after you, that's going to really encourage other people to get involved too. And so then Sam Simon, the creator of the Simpsons, gave us three million to buy a ship, which was the Sam Simon. And then Dax Silva did this one, which is called Age of Union, uh, after his company. Uh, John Paul DeJoria of Paul Mitchell Shampoos uh, and Patron Tequila, you know, he 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 sponsors the John Paul DeJoria, which is one of our patrol vessels in this, in the, for the Vikita campaign. Uh, Chris Sharp of Sharpie, uh, his corporation, he wanted to call it the Sharpie, I don't know why, but anyway, that vessel is sponsored in the in the there too. Uh, Farley Moa gave us a quarter of a million dollars, and uh, you know, we have the vessel, the Farley Moa. Actually, we've had two vessels called the Farley Moa. Uh, so Martin Sheen uh, sponsors our scientific research uh, sailing boat. So those kind of large corporate, uh, 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 large capital investments go for the purchase of the ship. But the actual running of the ship comes from small donations around the world. 
So I hear it's a lot more from individuals or for, from companies. There isn't a lot of philanthropic funding. So at Philab, we focus a lot on grant making. So the uh, foundations that are giving money. And of course, in Canada, being a nonprofit, especially with animals and or environmental base, you can't get charitable status. And so there wouldn't be the possibility of applying for those funds. Do you feel like that has been a significant struggle or an obstacle to getting funding for the Sea, for sea Shepherd? Well, we are getting our uh, tax uh, status back in Canada uh, because of the change in laws in 2019. In 1986, we had tax uh, status in, in Canada up until 1986. Then one day, somebody from Revenue Canada came to visit me, and uh, they said, are you opposed to the killing of wolves in northern British Columbia? Yes. Are you aware that the government supports the killing of wolves? Yeah. That's an uncharitable activity. You cannot do anything that the government of Canada disagrees with. And uh, are you opposed to the seal hunt in Canada? Yes. Do you realize that the Canadian government subsidizes it? Yes, that's an uncharitable activity. That's why we lost our tax status in, in Canada. But in 2019, apparently they changed the rules and uh, I believe Greenpeace has gotten their tax status back from uh, for the same reason. But uh, it was a rather bizarre situation to where a charity in, in, in Canada could not have tax status if the government disagreed with what they're doing. It's been a huge debate with this. a lot of environmental organizations and charities, especially under Harper, got uh, shut down and got lost their charitable status. And a lot of animal charities that are trying to change the laws to protect animals, but they cannot advocate for a legal change. So there's definitely a huge discrepancy between that. And that's why I believe in 2019, when that law came into effect, a lot of organizations are starting to gain more power. And it's, it's really sh making a shift in the priorities of what can be funded in Canada. Of course, since Sea Shepherd is also international in the different chapters, do they have their own funding strategies individually, or is there also a more global fundraising strategy? For instance, in Australia, we really had to fight for like eight years to get our tax status there because although we have a huge public support in Australia, the government has always been hostile there. But finally, they, uh, the government couldn't put us off anymore. In New Zealand, they denied Greenpeace the tax status, but gave it to us. Uh, but we have um, a tax status in France and Germany, the UK, uh, uh, Italy, uh, Austria, places like that. But those are all separate. Uh, those are all separate entities. And they're all Sea Shepherd groups in those countries are run by people in those countries. And uh, but we have an umbrella organization or sort of called Sea Shepherd Global. Sea Shepherd Global doesn't have any money at all. They're based in Amsterdam. And all Sea Shepherd Global does is coordinate the operations of the ships and everything independently. So the ships aren't linked to Sea Shepherd. Each ship has its own charitable um, organization. Uh, and that's, uh, I don't know if you know anything about shipping, but the problem is, is that uh, it's a liability issue, you know, so say if a ship gets in trouble, they can sue the whole organization. But the way it is right now, the ship can only be sued, you know, not, and, and the organization that owns the ship, but the organization that owns the ship isn't Sea Shepherd. See, sea Shepherd actually doesn't own any ships. <laughs> you know? So strategy. Well, it's 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 one the shipping industry is used for years and years. So we just sort of do what they, they do. Um, it's it's always a challenge because there's always new rules and regulations. 
one of the cha latest challenges is that, uh, you know, it's it cuts into us being able to use volunteers as effectively is that the registries want to have manning certificates. Now, the reason for this has nothing to do with us, but really has a lot to do with the refugee vessels that are in the Mediterranean, um, which one of them actually is captured by one of my former um, officers. Um, she got Banksy to bank from where to do that vessel. <laughs> but the problem is, is that these are, these are terrible organizations and they're picking up refugees, which are good, except that the governments in Europe didn't like that. And so to make it harder for them to operate, they said, okay, you're going to have to have manning certificates. You know, it was one thing to have the, the captain and the chief engineer and the first officer having proper certification, but these manning certificates are saying everybody has to have proper certification, every jack deckhand and every, you know, all these unskilled things have to have proper certification. So what's that forced us to do is that uh, when our volunteers come on board, we have to run them through courses in order to get their certification. Mm, that definitely complicates things a lot. Yeah, it makes it more difficult. And uh, also, our biggest problem is not actually acquiring ships. Our biggest problem is acquiring uh, skilled officers to uh, run those ships, and, uh, which is especially uh, challenging because all of our ships are 100% vegan. And getting engineers to <laughs> sign on to that is, has been a bit of a, a struggle. But, and not only the engineers, but the, uh, the, the policing bodies that come on board are uh, you know, in Africa and everything like that. It's interesting. I was I think in Gabon, uh, we had 12 uh, uh, soldiers come on board and said, I don't want anything to do with this vegan thing. And they said, okay, you guys make your stuff out on the out on deck and do whatever you want. But if you want to eat the vegan meals, you can. And uh, within two days, they're all eating inside and they felt that the food was better, you know, inside. So, you know, we found that uh, the best way to get people to uh, become vegan is to expose them to it, not to force them into it. It was definitely a very complex uh, situation with, uh, I had never known about the whole shipping regulations, so it definitely adds an extra level of complexity. Oh, well, I mean, the regulations are, are, are constantly are changing, and, and, they, and they're also, they change due to political pressure. And to give you how, an idea of how bizarre this was, in 2011, there was a situation where we had to go to rescue a Norwegian vessel that had sunk in the uh, McMurdo Sound in Antarctica. I had to fight my way through a storm, a really bad storm, which the HSS Wellington, the, the New Zealand warship, couldn't make it through, but we made it through. And we did the search. We found the life. Unfortunately, there were no survivors. We found the life um, uh, raft and the supplies and things like this. And uh, we had to go to McMurdo and had a helicopter and refuel. Fine, we get a commendation from New Zealand Search and Rescue. Then I get a letter from the New Zealand Foreign Minister reprimanding me for having gone on to uh, Ross Island without having the proper permit. And that permit takes three months to get. And I said, how am I supposed to get a permit when your search and rescue has asked me to go in and find these people? And the guy said, well, because, because uh, of that, we're not going to find you this time but don't do it again. So rather than saying, thank you for what we did, you know, this is a kind of, this is how some of these governments deal, deal with this, you know. But then again, it's, it's interesting how people come around. The Australian Environment Minister, Ian Campbell, in uh, 20, 2007, 2008, he was really hostile towards us and, you know, was totally against everything we were doing. 2009, Ian Campbell's the director of, of Sea Shepherd Australia and our representative to the International Whaling Commission, completely uh, changed his mind and came out and supported us instead of uh, uh, harassing us.
Well, that's a good sign. Well, <laughs> Things yeah. are starting to change. Well, yeah, one of our captains is a former chief of staff of the Italian Navy, a former admiral. He's captaining one of our vessels right now. So we're attracting a lot of people that uh, you would not think would be involved in, the, in, this, in this kind of thing. So things have definitely changed over nearly 50 years of working uh, with Sea Shepherd. How do you feel? I feel like there's been a lot of speak of how intense and how dire the situation seems for climate change and the climate crisis. Have Although the past 50 years of action, do you, what, do you have any still hope for what marine wildlife will be? Like, do you have any glimpse of hopes for, for what it could be? Oh. Uh, you know, I, I learned a, a, a lesson many, many years ago. I was a, a volunteer medic at Wounded Knee during the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973. And, um, you know, we were surrounded. There were, you know, 1,300 or 1,500 federal troops. And they were shooting at us 20,000 rounds a night. And, you know, 46 were wounded, two were killed. I, I went to Russell Means. I said, you know, we don't have a hope in hell of winning here. I mean, there's only 350 people here and you know these guys got weapons and they got everything like that they got tanks uh what do, why are we here i mean we're not we're not going to do anything and he looked at me and he he said something to me which has stayed with me all my life he said we're not here because we're worried about winning or losing we're not here because we're concerned about the odds against us we're here because this is the right place to be the right time to do it and the right thing to do don't worry about the future concentrate on the present. What you do in the present will define what the future will be. So that's what I do today. I don't worry about the future. I worry, I concentrate on, on the present. What we do today uh, will define what the future will be. We can't control the future, but we can control the present. Was there, if there are better words to end on than that, I don't know what they would be. So thank you so much. That's all the questions I have for now. If there's anything you feel you would like to share with our, we're going to be sharing this as a podcast. So if you would like anything to, to inspire other people to join or why you feel this is important, it would be great to share now. If not for me, that was all my questions for today. Well, the only thing I could add is that, you know, the strength of an ecosystem lies in diversity. Therefore, the strength of any movement must be lie with diversity. So it doesn't matter what you do, what your approach is. It could be litigation, it could be legislation, it could be, it could be um, you know, direct action, or it could be education. It doesn't matter. Everybody's efforts all work towards the same end and that's where the strength of a movement lies. So in many cases, we just simply need to agree to disagree on tactics and approaches and just accept that we're all contributing towards uh, the same uh, same goal. And uh, I, I, I see more and more uh, of that happening. Um, the big struggle, of course, right now is climate. It's, it's not climate change. I call it the climate crisis, because that's what it is right now. And um, I'm not sure that governments will actually do anything about it. Uh, because politically, it's, there's nothing they can do about it. It's pretty, it's pretty much political suicide. If any politician, prime minister, president, or government, tries to actually do something about it, they're going to, they're going to be tossed out because the, it's going to cause unemployment. It's going to cause jobs. It's going to be corporations are going to be angry. If you go back to in Canadian uh, history, back to the early eighties, prime minister Joe Clark said that, you know, all he did was say, I think Canadians should be paying the cost, the real cost of gasoline like they do in Europe. So therefore, you know, 
it's, it shouldn't be subsidized with the government. We've got to really pay where people have to understand how, how much it really is. Six months later, he's no longer prime minister. You know, so it's it's almost like a situation where these guys can't say anything other than they want. Justin Trudeau was the darling of 2015 uh, climate change conference in um, in Paris. Everybody loved Justin Trudeau, and he promised this and he promised that. And he promised, that, and he went back, and he was just as bad as as anybody else. Really, <laughs> you know, broke every promise and everything. They just can't do it. Now their latest promise was. Uh, we're going to have uh, no more cutting of old growth forests, no more uh, uh, deforestation as to 2030. Very easy to say in 2021, no more deforestation by 2030, because by the time 2030 comes along, they won't have that position won't be. Do you think Brazil and Canada is going to stop logging because, because they said they're going to do it? They're not. The, the, all, the, all these things are just future promises, which are, don't hold any water at all. And so the, the only way that we're going to have any change is through non-government organizations and the, and the passion, the courage, and the imagination of individuals. That's the only thing that's going, going to, to, to make, any, any, make a difference. And because uh, there's only two solutions. We either find an answer or uh, the answer will be delivered to us by Mother Nature and it won't be very pleasant. Yeah. But I always say, you know, when people say, well, you know, it's an impossible problem, but the, the answer to an impossible problem is to find the impossible solution. And how you do that is through passion, courage, and imagination. The very idea in 1972 that Nelson Mandela would be president of South Africa was unthinkable. It was impossible. And yet the impossible became possible. So I think that that holds true for a lot of things. So that gives me hope. That's great. Maybe just to circle back since we talked about it, but since obviously governments don't really have the power to implement many of these changes, I guess would that be where the third sector, so nonprofits and philanthropy can kind of play a bigger role in supporting these, these different campaigns. So for example, foundations can start actually financing and funding organizations that are trying to protect the environment, trying to protect animals and their well-being. No, absolutely. That, that, that's what they should be doing. And uh, the, yeah, because solutions are not going to come from government. For instance, a few years ago, I took a look at the province of British Columbia. The, uh, there was a PR company called Burston and Marsteller. It was the largest PR company in the world, represents all the oil companies and everything. That PR company was representing the logging industry in British Columbia. It was representing the government of British Columbia. It was representing the uh, newspaper and television, BCTV and the Pacific Press. The same PR company, representing government, corporation, and the media. And that this collusion of those three is what keeps us where we are. The problem isn't fake news. The problem is no news. Things that the media just simply doesn't cover, ignores completely, or unless you force them. I mean, for instance, uh, you know, standing rock and the pipeline debate and everything, they didn't even want to talk about that until they were forced to do it. But, um, you know, Fukushima, when do you ever hear anything about Fukushima? They're dumping radioactive water into the ocean all the time, but it's never in the news. There's certain things that they decide that they're not going to, they're not going to cover. And that's because of a collusion between government corporations and the media to decide what they want. And CBC is useless. I always call them controlled by Canada anyway. <laughs> no, for sure. It's definitely a very complex situation. 
So thank you so much for all of this incredible insight. I can't wait to delve into it on a more deep levels.